So let's take a look <laughs> at the book of Acts chapter 21. You can tell my voice is not all there. Uh, I've not coughed once since I've been talking, so uh, that's a good thing. Um, we're looking at uh, Acts 21. We're in Paul's third missionary journey, dating around AD 52 to 57. Um, you can see here on the overhead, just a quick uh, overview of where Paul started in this third journey. started from Antioch, makes his way back to Ephesus, where he had already been in his third journey. This is not his first. Uh, he, from here, he goes to... Uh, um, Spends a good amount of time in Ephesus, goes back over to the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, goes back down to Corinth, and back up to Thessalonica, where he is going to make his way back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. From there, he goes up there, he preaches in Troas, uh, and the little boy falls off the, uh, uh, the third-story window. Well, I'm not sure his third story, but a high window and dies. Paul brings him back to life. Uh, we see that in Acts 19. Or Acts chapter 20, I should say. Paul makes his way, as we looked at last time, on the last time I taught on Wednesday night, uh, where Paul stopped there at, at Miletus, and he brought the, the elders from uh, Ephesus there and gave, bid them farewell. Today, he makes his way across to Patara, back down to the south, to Tyre, Ptolemais, Caesarea, and then to Jerusalem. That's his third journey. Um, here it is. You can see a closer view. Kos up here. Rhodes. Batara. 21.1 says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, that is, the elders from Ephesus, uh, the deep love they had, they tore themselves away. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there we went to Patara. You can just see this this historical sequence of events that Luke is giving us. So what are we going to look at tonight? In the brief time that we have left, some of us are wrestling with crucial or difficult decisions, maybe all of us, that must be made in our lives. In these situations, we're going to wonder what God's will is for us. Have you ever been there? What is God's will? We might even think we know God's will, but we're concerned that we might be unable to accomplish God's will. I, I think it's easy to know God's will. His overall general will for our lives to bring glory to Him, Right? to uh, uh, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring glory to him, everything we do. But how we do that, the specifics of that, might be someone you marry. I know God wants me to marry someone in the Lord, but I'm in love with three different women. They're all Christians, right? What's God's will? Betty, Jane, or Cheryl? <laughs> I chose Cheryl. <laughs> um, we don't know. And, and we'll see that in Paul, I think, in this passage tonight. The story of Paul's struggle offers us Helpful insights into how not to be derailed in following God's directions for us. His courageous commitment stemming from his deep convictions is a trait in all those whom God chooses to lead. Men like Abraham, Joshua and Caleb standing up amongst the other 12 who said we, or the other 10 I should say, were sent out as spies. We can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said we can. And Caleb said, and we will, we must. David against great odds. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Standing up against all the adversaries of the day. People telling them, no, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. You should not go there. Them doing it anyway. Paul, we'll see Paul tonight in a great dilemma. So let's take a look at our passage. Chapter 21, they departed from Ephesus, from Miletus, I should say, verse 2. And having found a ship, the crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. This is Luke writing in the first person, we. 
when we came inside of Cyprus, that's that island there in the Mediterranean, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there was a ship, for there was a ship there to, to unload its cargo. After looking up at the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul, note this, they kept telling Paul. Well, let me go back for a second. Do we know of anywhere in the Bible where Paul planted a church in Tyre? We don't. Uh, Paul never went there to plant a church. We don't know of anyone that went there to plant a church. We do, however, I was noticing in uh, Luke chapter 6, 6, where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel, is that a whole group of, from Tyre had been, came to hear him. But there's a church there. They don't know Paul. Paul doesn't know them. But when they, they get to Syria, they land at Tyre, uh, the ship was to unload its cargo after looking up the disciples. So Paul goes looking for the people he knows are in Christ there in Tyre. And he stayed there with them seven days. Know what they tell him. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit. How many of you, your Bibles have the Spirit is capitalized there? Does anyone have a translation where it's not capitalized? The Greek text does not specify. It could be a small s, it could be a large s. It could be through their own spirits they were telling them not to go, or it's through the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is telling them not to set sail, set foot in Jerusalem, we would expect Paul to say, okay, I'll listen to the Spirit. But it doesn't say anything here. Let's, let's move on. We'll come back to that. Seven days there. When our days were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home again. When we, were, when we had finished the voyage, from Tyre we arrived at Ptolemais, which today is called Akko. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. That's about 40 miles down. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist is um, distinct here from Philip the Apostle, right? And called the evangelist, we know he's an evangelist because we met him back in chapter 8. He was one of the first deacons from Acts. We met him in Acts 6. Acts 6, he was appointed as one of the seven that, that seemed to be the early deacons of the church. And he dis was dispersed from there. And why was he dispersed from Jerusalem? Do you remember? He the rest with the rest of the seven and the whole church in Jerusalem because of the persecution that had broken out because of who? Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus. So they've gone out. Philip goes into Samaria, preaches the gospel there, preaches the gospel to a, an important person, uh, not only the, the Samaritans, but uh, uh, a very important person down in Africa. Um, Paul says, we stayed with him. Uh, verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. What that means is never explained. Virgin daughters, probably it's why they're still with uh, their father, Philip. Perhaps they were set apart for some special divine purpose by God. They're prophetesses. I'll cover that in just a minute. Again, it doesn't say what they were. It doesn't mean that they were out there preaching the gospel. In fact, by now, Paul has already written 1 Corinthians where he forbids women to be preachers in 1 Corinthians 14. Later, he'll write 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he also forbids it, but doesn't mean that they're out there being preachers and starting churches and starting the, 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 uh, the school of Beth Moore. <laughs> Verse 10, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea 
And coming to us, he took Paul's belt around his own feet and his hands. This would be a, don't imagine a belt like we typically have today. This would be a long um, belt of some kind of cord where he takes this and dramatically wraps it around him. He took Paul's belt around his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Again, the Holy Spirit speaking. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, Paul, this is Luke saying, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, that is Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. So if the Holy Spirit has said down in verse four, don't go, it's kept telling the people to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem because he's going to get hurt there. Agabus comes down and prophesies that this belt here is indicative of how they're going to wrap you and chain you. Even Luke is saying, we begged him, please don't do this. Um, in verse 12, don't go up to Jerusalem. Paul answers in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent remarking the will of the Lord be done. So I've had this question put to me even in recent days before I got to this by some visitors. I haven't seen them in a while here, but uh, others have said, I had this conversation with my father-in-law, whom I respect greatly. Did Paul disobey the Spirit of God? Well, do other Bible figures, are they guilty of disobeying God? David? Abraham? That's one of the great things about the Bible. We see the downfalls, the, the, the sins of, of the great patriarchs uh, of Scripture. Perhaps Paul made a mistake too. Perhaps Paul was just so pig-headed and so arrogant, like some people accuse him of being, he's just going to do what he's going to do, and he listens to no one, like some preachers I know. <laughs> a little late, Mark, a little late. In, in Acts twenty twenty two, as we said previously, Paul was bound by the Spirit. Now, it could be bound in his own spirit, but I think it's translated, he was bound by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem where he had previously, as it said in Acts 19.21, purposed in the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. So Paul was going to Jerusalem. He knew that that's where he needed to go. Why specifically did he want to go there at that time? Do you remember? What's that? Yeah. Had a bag of money. He had picked up from all the Gentile churches, that he had, and he was coming back to help the poor in Jerusalem. That's why he was raising that money. So he wanted to go there. He, he felt compelled to go there, even though people are now telling him, by the Spirit, not to go. So we know that Paul is, uh, does he get to trump them because he's an apostle? Does one person hear the Holy Spirit louder than another? Does the Holy Spirit tell one person one thing and another person another thing? That's the better question. Does he? No. The Holy Spirit, if, if he is one and without contradiction, would say the same thing. Shortly thereafter, it was revealed to Paul through the Spirit that persecution awaited him in Jerusalem. That's what we just read. But this was only a warning from the Spirit about persecution. It was not a warning from the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. You'll find in every one of those passages that every time it says through the Spirit, when they say not to go to Jerusalem, all they're saying is through the Spirit, we're told that you're going to suffer persecution. When someone we love is going to walk into a firestorm, what do we want to keep them from? The firestorm. We don't want that for our friends or loved ones. So we might tell someone, the Spirit of God has told me to tell you 
not to do it. Don't go. My wife loves me. She knows, I mean, I walked in, you come back from vacation in any church and you walk into a bunch of firestorms. If you don't think I walked into a few when I got home, you're crazy. I'm still trying to put out those fires. Go for a little while. You never know what's going to happen. People hear things that weren't said. People make conclusions with information that that wasn't the conclusion to be drawn. You have to you have to go back. You have to try to clarify. Sometimes people have already decided to believe what they want to believe in. They don't want to hear. They don't want to talk. Have to deal with it. She, uh, when I was on, when I was in Jerusalem, when I was in Israel, I'd, we'd FaceTime. And I can always tell Cheryl knows something. She can't hide from me. But I also know she's not going to tell me. Everything okay at home? Yeah. Yeah. She didn't want to ruin my time. Yeah, it, really what she's saying is, just wait till you get home, Lance. <laughs> and, and that happens every time I go away. And, and so to spare me, don't even make that phone call, Lance. Don't even bother visiting that Lance. Just, is that the Spirit of God telling her that? Or is that a woman that loves me? It's a woman that loves me. Is it my job to call? Am I going to be persecuted? Are people going to hate me? Some of you maybe in a week, a day, 10 years, it, it happens. Um, you can't keep me from that. My wife cannot keep me from that. My children cannot. My mom, my dad, um, my mom gets hurt when I get hurt. Um, but that goes with it. These people are simply saying, we have a message from the spirit of God and that's you're going to be persecuted. In our own spirit, we don't want you to go and be persecuted. Paul, stay back. Back when Paul was forbidden by the Spirit of God to enter Asia in chapter 16, verse 6, and Bithynia in 16, 7, he complied. But Jerusalem was never forbidden to him. He had it in his heart from the Spirit to go there. Thus, through both compulsion and warning, the Spirit of God directed Paul's travels. And what, he, what directs Paul will direct us. Through both the Spirit of God, or we should say through compulsion, I'm compelled to do the things I do as a pastor. Sometimes I know it's Lance Waldy. Other times I know it's God. It's the Spirit of God. And then warning from the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's someone telling me something. Sometimes someone, there are people, I get foul emails that tell me things that hurt. And the same day I'll get two emails. I mean, I got an email today from a guy who hasn't, I, I'd totally forgotten about him. I met him once or twice. He came before. He said, you might, have, might remember me. I came right before COVID and then COVID kind of took us out. And we've really enjoyed watching church on TV, but now we're convicted to come back out. And he said the nicest things in the midst of having read some things that kind of hurt. So who do I listen to? The people that say the hurtful things, people that say the nice things. Isn't it funny how you can get both? Paul hears both. We hear both. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision on what God is leading you to do. I find this passage to be very refreshing for someone like me. I am a type A driven. I would not stand up and say a word to you unless I thought I knew exactly what I was talking about. You either like that or you hate it. You're either going to say that's conviction or that's arrogance. You may say, Lance, you could have said that better. And you're probably right. A lot of things I could say better. 
You might say, Lance, this is how you should preach. This person might say, this is how you should preach. You should say this, you shouldn't say that. I don't listen to any of that because you're not the preacher. You can give that advice. Same is true with Paul. Same is true with your young mother. You're going to mother your children the way you think you should mother your children. You might not know anything. You might not listen to people who have been there before you and 22 years old, you seem to know everything about being a mother, but you're going to do what you think is right. And you'll suffer the consequences and learn your lessons as we all do. But you have to do what you have to do. Paul is essentially saying, you can have your opinions. Thank you for looking out for me. I'm going to do what God called me to do. And as a pastor, I feel the same way. I'm going to do what God called me to do. I can only do that. If I'm listening to this person and that person and these people and these people and this email and that text mail, what kind of a preacher am I going to be? If I step up to my pulpit and I've got a whole list of words and landmines to avoid, oh, don't say this word, don't say that, stay away from this topic, stay away from, that's not going to happen. I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to make mistakes. God knows I've made them. I'm humiliated over some, this past Sunday, the, past, the last time I preached, I made this statement. And it was in reference to a young lady who was uh, being warned about not coming to Harvest Bible Church. Uh, this lady told me, she said, yeah, some friends of ours told us from this particular church, stay away from those people at Harvest Bible Church. They're Calvinists. Run from them. Well, that, that bothers me. I mean, I, that doesn't just irk me. That infuriates me. A, most people don't even know what Calvinism is. B, those who don't ought not be saying anything about it. But in my own flesh, I stood up and I said, look, anyone who tells you to run from this church, you run from them. Now, that offended a few people in our church who do not consider themselves Calvinists. I misspoke. I was wrong. I even went so far as to say, if you're not a Calvinist, you're a heretic. Now, my view of a Calvinist is one who believes in the Bible. A Calvinist is not someone who follows John Calvin. Calvinism is just a word we use to talk about God's sovereignty. John Calvin was a verse-by-verse, line-by-line preacher who got it right most of the time uh, without any resources to help him. I love that. I believe in the doctrine of election because it's in the Bible. I believe the Bible is God's word because God's word says it. It's transformed my life. I've seen it transform other lives. Hence, I call myself a Calvinist. I do not say you have to be five points, four points, three points, two and a half points. I don't care about that. You get the first point right of total depravity, everything else falls into place anyway. So I made that statement, that blanket statement. I hurt feelings, and that's on me. You're going to say things you regret as a teacher. No doubt about it. But at the end of the day, I know what I meant. I know what my heart was, was, was. I know where it was. And um, you just have to suffer the consequences of it. And I think Paul, is, Paul shows me that as well, as well as the prophets. He knew that prison and hardships awaited him everywhere he went. I know that every time I open my mouth, prison and hardships await me. Sometimes I wish, I, I say this seriously, sometimes I wish there was more physical punishment than the mental anguish of preaching. Uh, the mental anguish of preaching and being judged and people making fun of you behind your back and saying things and people that you love hearing something and then they never come back, they won't even talk to you again. That hurts more than wish someone could come up and just club me in the face and be done with it. Why'd you do that? I didn't like what you said, but I'll see you next week. (laughs) 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> One of those smart looks in that area, Stephen, Kurt, something like that. So in Tyre, it was through the spirit that certain disciples urged him. And the imperfect tense of the verb is over and over. They're begging him not to, not to go to Jerusalem. While in Caesarea, prophet Agabus began his prophecy with the formula the Holy Spirit says. But if Paul had heeded his friend's pleas, and Agabus' prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled. And it was fulfilled because Paul did go to Jerusalem and he was bound. So was Paul right to brush aside his friends who implored him to abandon his plan? Some blame Paul for his obstinacy. Others admire him for his unshakable resolve. I, I'm the latter, for sure. Unshakable resolve. A man in leadership, a woman in leadership, a person in leadership, a person in ministry has to have an unshakable resolve. You cannot be, okay, going with the flow. What, how should I preach? What should I do? I once knew a preacher who, every time he preached, every time, he would reach in his back pocket, pull out a handkerchief and go, <laughs> look at it, put it back in. And I thought, he's got a wife. I mean... <laughs> That's something that you need to tell you. Don't do that. That's annoying. Another preacher who looked like Chris Farley. Every time he was up there, he was doing this the whole time. <laughs> uh, just annoying. Annoying habits. Or maybe you know somebody who's always doing this or something. Maybe. But that would be good advice to listen to. Versus, Lance, I think you're preaching the gospel too harshly. I think you don't, don't say the word Calvinism. That might offend people. Don't go here, that might divide. I don't listen to any of that. I know, it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? My unshakable resolve is to preach this word. And if I, if I die doing it, good. That's the way I want to die. If I'm persecuted to the fact to the day when no one's here except my wife, so be it. So be it. That's, that's what I'm going to do. These passages motivate me that way. So if you think this guy's... This guy's going out of control reading the Bible. I am. I love it that much. I can do this completely burned out physically. I get to this, and this is all. This is this is what motivates me. So I would just say, let. I'm sorry. What would they have said about Paul if he hadn't gone to Jerusalem when he had all this money that he told them they would? What would Paul have done? What they've said about Paul with all this? Okay, he's looking at. He probably thought, you know, I'm going to go get beat up there. I got this bag of money. God knows my heart. I was going to go there, right? I could retire here in Caesarea with Philip and his four prophesying daughters. You're right. What would they have said? I don't think Paul would have been able to live with himself. I would say, let's conclude that the warning about persecution was divine, but the urging to avoid it was mere human. Wouldn't you? Later, Paul, Acts 23.1. Look, look at Acts 23.1. It's just right on the next page for you. Here's what he says. Looking intently at the council, he said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Do you think he would say that if he had disobeyed the Spirit of God? Nah. John MacArthur says, Neither the threat of persecution nor the pleadings of well-meaning fellow believers could divert Paul from fulfilling his calling. He retained the courage of his conviction despite the repeated warnings of severe persecution once he reached Jerusalem. Nothing could dissuade him from carrying out the task that the Lord had assigned to him. Uh, I'm going to go through that because I don't have time. I was going to, to hit the prophesying daughters. I will come back to it next time because it's a good topic. If the Bible talks about prophesying daughters um, in, in a world where we're trying to figure out if females can be preachers, we'll take a look at that next time. 
But just to conclude, some observations from our text tonight is note how Paul's acquaintances demonstrated the all too common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. You ever been there? You know exactly what someone should do with their life? Uh, God told you. You don't mind telling them? Sometimes well-meaning believers attempt to make God's will conform to their preconceptions. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. Then we'll all be deprived of his ministry. Uh, Where's the focus there? Yeah, it's a selfish focus. I don't want Paul to suffer. I don't want him to be gone. That's about me. Why not? I want him. Let him him suffer. I don't want him to suffer, but let him do what God has called him to do to the glory of God, not to my detriment. It's me focused. What am I getting out of it? Doesn't God want me to be happy? We choose God's will, not suffering. But God's will entails suffering. We serve not because we enjoy it, but because we're compelled to serve, because God led us to serve. That's what Paul's doing. It's what I'm doing. I hope that's what you're doing. I hope we're not in those kinds of people that go out there and would try to dissuade someone from doing such because we think they should be doing something else. These Christians were not seeing God's ultimate purposes. They were looking out for Paul's good, but not God's. We might say they love Paul, but not God's. Paul had a long-standing inward constraint to go to Jerusalem, suffer if need be, to resolve. That went all the way back to his conversion when Jesus told him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He refused to be deterred from God's revealed will. And, and that's the way I feel. I, I am not going to be deterred. And God's given me this cantankerous, type A, stubborn, yes, arrogant will. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. If I wasn't married, I would be a, a wild stallion. Pray that God keeps that wonderful woman alive to keep the leash on me. I, I would be like Ruth Lindley shaking my finger. You're, that is not a God. Um, I mean, I'm invigorated by that feeling, but I also feel the danger of it and, and the immaturity of it at some level. As a God pleaser, not a man pleaser, Paul would have loved men like Eric Little. And of course, that comes from uh, uh, Chariots of Fire. Any of you young people seen Chariots of Fire? Church fire. Giles, Giles, you're not young, pal. You're British. I got an assignment for you young guys. Go watch Chariots Fire and learn about one of the great missionaries of our day named Eric Little, who would not run in the Olympics on the Sabbath day because he was a good Presbyterian. He stood up, he would have won it, uh, gotten another race that he wasn't trained for, won it to the glory of God, went to China, shared the gospel until he died there. And Paul would have loved men just like him. Watch it. Assignment. Don't let me down, boy. And any of you haven't seen Chariots of Fire. So how do we know the difference between prompting of the Spirit and our own slanted manner of thinking? The Spirit of God told me this. Does he? In what way does he do it? If only God would speak to us the way he did in the past. That passage in 1 Kings 17.3. Go away from here, where he tells Elijah. Go away from here, turn eastward. <laughs> hide yourself in the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Wouldn't that be great? Lance wants you to go here. Take a right, left in Albuquerque, and do this. But God doesn't do that. We have the Bible. The Bible tells us God's will. We don't always know the specifics of it. Wouldn't that be great? So how do we know the Spirit of God is talking to us? Sometimes the more counsel you receive from others, the more confusion you'll find. I used to be an editor. It was my job to help the, the editors of the, of the letters or the articles that we were writing. And uh, the more people I took it to, to edit, the worse it got. 
Everybody's got to, yeah, let's do that. Take this out. Use this word. Get rid of it. No, look, I'm going to go to two people from now on. You're making my job ridiculous. I don't consult people. I know I've talked to pastors. They'll sit in a group of elders and the elders will help them do their sermon. I don't do that. I can, I can read the Bible for myself. I'm convicted enough to find just through basic observations. The more people I ask, well, the, the less, the less that sermon's going to be what God wants me to preach. Didn't God call me to be the preacher? I mean, I guess you must think that you come and listen to me. And there are others, you know, and, and when you share, you might ask somebody, hey, I want to say this like this. Could I say it better? That, that's okay. But don't sit down with somebody and do the study together. You do it and listen for God. He's not going to speak to you in a voice, but he'll show you. The longer you look at a passage, you'll know what it means. Very few decisions we make will garner full approval from everyone. We have to do what we think is right with or without the approval of others. You have to do what you think is right. I mean, there's a thousand different examples I can give. I will not bore you with them. And I'm glad I have them in my own mind because I, I had to go through it. I had to make the decisions. Even sometimes my wife was not with me. I'm just changing jobs one time. From I was an editor at an international Christian media, and I wanted to change jobs to go clean swimming pools where I would make twice as much money in half the time. Poor thing is at home with two children while I'm in seminary, and she's going, please, God, let him know what he's doing. I didn't, I didn't want to ask her. Look, I'm doing this. It was the best decision I made at the time, but it scared my wife to death. Planting a church. We're going to uproot from Dallas and Denton where we were in our home. We're going to move to Houston and plant a church. We don't know if anybody's going to come to this church. I'm going to do this. This is what God has called me to do. And if I fail, I fail. But I'm going to fail having tried. The Spirit of God at least had led me to that point. What about you? We can read God's Word. This is the Spirit of God speaking. The Bible is the Spirit of God speaking. You don't hear the voice. You can read it out loud and hear, hear your voice. When you read God's Word, when you think about it, when you dwell upon it, I'm not just talking about reading it to check off your day's reading. Read it. Think about it. God, what do you have for me here today? What, what can I do to please you based on what you've given me today? I promise you, He'll show you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the example of men like Paul, Abraham, David, Joshua, Caleb, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Men just like us. Red blood flowing through their veins, not knowing exactly what will happen, but compelled, compelled to follow you. Compelled to be obedient to you in the, even in the face of death. May we be that way. We live in a world, Lord, where your name is blasphemed. We're made fun of for following you, following some mythological God, singing songs and wasting our time in church. People make fun of us, and it's only going to get worse. I pray that we would not be obstinate, but that we would be all the more joyful, serving you, compelled to do so, because you've drawn us to you. And if there's a price to be paid, for being faithful to you, I pray that we'd be willing to pay it, even if it's the loss of friends. At the end of the day, Lord, may it be our goal to bring glory and honor to you, to you alone. What anyone else thinks doesn't matter. Our audience is an audience of one. And you are all that matters to us. May that be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy 
Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 